Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, if we've never met, my name is Jay. I'm part of the team here. Um, apologies ahead of time. I, I'm not sick. I don't have COVID, but I have a little bit of a cough. I think it's the allergies. The tree pollen's really high right now. So um, I've been struggling with my voice a bit the last week. And I have a lot of talking to do in the next seven days. So if you're the praying type, I, I really do mean this. If you're the praying type, if you could just pray for my voice and my mind and uh, my heart and just me, my life. Pray for me. <laughs> um, you know, typically we don't start sermons. Uh, we, we like to start sermons sort of on an upbeat or something interesting. I don't have anything like that today. Um, I, I have uh, something somber that I hope will move us into hope. Um, it's fascinating, this Palm Sunday, we are reminded that Jesus came humbly on a colt, and he, he, he marches into Jerusalem with a cheer and adoration of the crowds, and then a few days later, they are, those same crowds are um, screaming to have him killed. And on Monday, those of you who've been following the news, you saw um, the tragic news of uh, Covenant Christian School out in Nashville, and a school shooter um, wounded many and, and killed um, six people, three uh, teachers, faculty, um, substitute teachers, and then three children, all nine years old. And uh, my wife and I have an almost eight-year-old and a five-year-old, and we've been wrestling with a few things with our eight-year-old, just school stuff, you know, things, challenges she has, and um, just building resilience, and we get so stressed out. And Jenny said to me, uh, Monday afternoon, she said, um, I'm just so glad they're alive. I, I'm really, I'm re as you are, I'm, ex I'm exhausted getting up here talking about stuff like this. I'm just so tired of it. This sort of grief is like way too familiar in our world. And at my worst, what I want to do is blame people and blame whatever. You and I could argue all day about, you know, mental health issues and gun reform or what we can go on and on. And these are important things. But honestly, where I find both my most sort of furious longing and deepest hope is that I think there's stuff happening beneath the surface. There is evil in our world. There always has been. And school shootings are not a part of God's plan for the flourishing of his people. Death is not a part of the plan, which is why, whether you're a Christian or not, it just rubs you the wrong way, right? I mean, it doesn't just rub you the wrong way. It makes you sick, and it should There's a prayer um, by uh, one of my old seminary professors that I want to read for you. Whether you're the praying type or not, would you just close your eyes? I just want to read this prayer to center us this morning. O oh Lord, you who abhor those who murder the innocent, be not deaf to our bitter cries, we pray, and do not abandon us to our pain today. Hear and heed our groans for justice, 
meet us in this lowly and desperate place. Deliver us from evil for your name's sake so that we might witness your might to save and your power to heal. We pray this in the name of our fortress and our refuge, Jesus. Amen. Again, how does something like this happen, right? There's a wide variety of explanations, but I've come to believe the primary reason is because of something under the surface. You and I live in a culture that holds very strictly to a materialistic, naturalistic view. Essentially what that means is that most people you know, whether you believe this or not, most people you know believe that if you cannot see it or touch it or feel it, put a number, a height, or a weight to it, then it's not real. But without the possibility that there are supernatural things happening beneath the surface of the natural, we put ourselves in a very dangerous and destructive position. Let me read for you a quote that I've read here before from a pastor in New York named John Tyson. He says that a culture that has removed the supernatural from its thinking will not do away with the concepts of the supernatural. It will transfer them to the natural. Without acknowledging actual fallen angels and enemies of God, we turn others into fallen members of our desired social conditions and enemies of ourselves. This is one of the reasons why we find ourselves so busy yelling and screaming at each other anything, any, anytime anything goes wrong. Because we have come to believe that the, the source of all of our problems are natural and material and human. And when we believe that, then all we have to blame is one another or ourselves. And so think about Twitter or Facebook. What is it? It is a wasteland of blaming one another about anything and everything. This is not to say humans are not to blame. We certainly participate in many ways in the brokenness of our world, but there is something happening beneath the surface. Now, I don't have time today in the next 30 minutes to like deep dive into the supernatural, but some of you were around last August. How many of you were around last August for the Unseen series? Let me just show it to you. Um, You can take out your phone if you're interested in like all of this. I, I need to know more. I would encourage you, you can go to our website, that QR code will sort of take you there, but you could just go to the teaching page on our website, look for that graphic. And we did a whole series, four whole weeks on the supernatural and on the devil and demons and angels and God and gods and all sorts of stuff. There's um, a bunch of resources on that page as well. There's a Q&A that we did with Dr. Gary Brashears, who's a professor at Western Seminary. And uh, we get into like all sorts of nuts and bolts. And um, so if you're interested in that, I would highly recommend that resource. Now, this brings us to our text today in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew since 2003. And uh, here we are on chapter 8. Let me read it for you. Some of you are like new. You're like, really, 2003? It it kind of feels that way. um, Matthew chapter 8. When he, Jesus, arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men came from the tombs, uh, coming from the tombs, met him. And they were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Interesting. More on that in a bit. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus, 
If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he, Jesus, said to them, the demons, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. And those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Last week, Lisa told the story that comes right before this about Jesus calming the waves, you know? And I'm a little jealous because that's like such a fun, awesome passage to teach. Today, I have demon possession in pigs. So good times, you guys. Here we go. The biblical worldview here and throughout has no problem with the existence of an unseen realm. You see it here, right? It's not like the biblical writers, Matthew, the biographer here, it's not like he pauses to explain to you. He's like, okay, I know this is kind of crazy about these demon-possessed men, but listen. Like, he doesn't do that. He's just like, no, demon-possessed men. And Jesus' original audience 2,000 years ago, or Matthew's original audience, would have read a story like this. They would have been like, yeah, that kind of thing happens. The Bible, again, has no problem with the words of Paul in Ephesians 6, that there are in this world powers of a dark world and spiritual forces of evil. And so, again, check out the Unseen Realm resources if you're interested in finding out more. But let's just assume for a moment that there are unseen forces, spiritual forces of evil in our world. What are they up to today? Now, I I would suggest to you that sometimes, even in our day and age, possession, demon possession like that in this story it actually does sort of express itself that way. I've actually seen it up close and personal. Several people on our staff have as well. Now, I know for many of us, we're thinking, Jay, that sounds crazy. Listen, you don't need to believe me. That's sort of beside the point today. Again, I would point you back to the unseen resource. Now, I have, again, whether you believe me or not, doesn't matter, I have witnessed, not a lot, but a handful of times, Demon possession in the sort of like ecstatic, wild, very clearly supernatural way. But that is not the most common way these sorts of things happen. Now, I want to get back into the text, but I do want to take a moment just to, just to speak pastorally. Anytime we talk about demon possession, even for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, those of us who are Christians, it can get a little confusing and maybe even strike a little bit of fear or anxiety. So let me just tell you my best understanding of the scriptures. I do not believe that followers of Jesus can be possessed by demons. So if you are a Christian, do not fear that a demon is going to possess you. Why do I believe this? A number of reasons. Again, in the resource page for the unseen, there's a Q&A with Dr. Brashears where he deep dives into this. But let me just give you a couple of passages, hopefully to instill confidence and comfort. Colossians 1, Paul says, he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. If you are a follower of Jesus, there is darkness and spiritual forces of evil that exists in our world, but you do not belong to their kingdom. You belong to the kingdom of God, and you are protected there. You are sheltered there. God loves you, cares for you. He is with you. He surrounds you. 
2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we, us, God's people, we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That word for agreement in the original Greek is a word that might be best understood as union. And so what Paul is saying here is what union is there between God's people, his temple, and idols, the stuff of a dark, evil, spiritual realm. There cannot be union there. So again, if you are a follower of Jesus, I just have to say, you don't need to fear demon possession. However, there is something more common and pervasive happening Again, beneath the surface in our world. John chapter 8. When the devil lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. These are Jesus' words. The devil is the, the great enemy of God, he who rules over the spiritual forces of evil in the unseen realm. And so while, even for Christians, while demons cannot possess us, the great enemy of God can and desires to oppress and enslave us with lies. And so what are some of the most common, and there are so many, but I took some time this week to sort of think through what are some of the most common pervasive lies of the spiritual forces of evil today, where the enemy of God, even for Christians, seeks to suppress, oppress, and enslave us with these lies. And I just came up with a handful that I see over and over again in our culture today. I'll show them to you here on a graphic. One, there's individualism. This lie that everything is about me and for me. There's pluralism. The lie that everything is true if you want it to be true. There's the lie of cynicism, that everything is hopeless. Or the lie of nihilism, that everything is meaningless. Or materialism, that everything I want should be mine. Or hedonism, that everything should feel good. And when you see these words and you think about the lies, the reality is even for the majority of us in this room who would say, I am a follower of Jesus, even for me, I find myself believing these lies. And maybe I don't intellectually believe them. Maybe intellectually I think to myself, well, I, I know that that's not the plan God has for my life. But in my embodied reality, my desires betray often my intellectual belief. I find in my body, myself, from time to time, moving in a direction that says, well, you know, materialism sounds pretty good. I think maybe that is the path to a life of meaning and joy and significance. Or hedonism, I would love for my life to just feel good all the time. I know intellectually that's not the way God has written the human story, but there's something in me that sort of desires and longs for that. Or individualism. It's like, no, you know, I know in my mind the world does not orbit around me, but everything in my body seems to sort of indicate that that is the sort of life I actually want because I actually think a life that orbits around me is the sort of life that will lead to meaning and joy and significance and on and on. 
So there are all sorts of lies, and I personally have come to believe these lies find their roots in unseen spiritual places. That the great enemy of God is trying to oppress and enslave God's people, speaking his native tongue, his native language, which are lies. And here's the thing. We, I've realized this just in pastoral counseling meetings over the years as I've met with people in our church and in other churches where I've served who come in, they're wrestling and struggling. Hey, pastor, I need help with X, Y, and Z. And we sit down and we talk. And not always, but like 98% of the time, whatever they are struggling with, we can create a sort of connection to one of these six key lies. Over and over again, I find this. And what I have discovered in so many meetings with people wrestling with these lies of the enemy is that the lies become so pervasive that we find ourselves obsessing over them, obsessing over a life of individualism or obsessing over some sort of material desire or obsessing over hedonism, even though we wouldn't call it that, but a life of pleasure that always feels good, or obsessing over our cynicism or nihilism, just a sort of resignation, nothing will ever get better, so who cares, no difference. It makes no difference how I live my life. And and it becomes an obsession, and an obsession is a sort of possession. You become possessed by the thing you obsess over. This isn't demon possession, but there is a sort of possession that takes place. Many of us in the room know exactly what I'm talking about. You have felt the bitter pain of enslavement to one or more of these ideas at some point in your life. I know I have. So what can be done? A better way to ask the question, is Jesus capable? Can Jesus actually free me? from this oppression, this obsession, this enslavement to the variety of lies that the enemy throws our way. Matthew 8, 28 to 32. Again, let's read it one more time. When he arrived at the other side, of the, the, uh, other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? What an interesting line. And some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. These two violent demon-possessed men, the story tells us, they come from the tombs. In the ancient world, tombs were not only considered spiritually and ceremonially unclean, but most people in the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles alike, believed that when people were possessed by demons, that if the demons would take them near areas of death like tombs, that it signified that these demons were stronger, more powerful than most. They believed that tombs, which represent death, which are literally geographic locations of death, people believed that the tombs were the places where the spiritual forces of evil were the strongest. And so the fact that these men come from the tombs indicates to us in this story these are not just demon-possessed men. 
In fact, the same story is told in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel. And in those gospels, what we read is that at least one of these men was chained up by the townspeople. They were chained up and they were so physically strong because of the demons inside them, they broke the chains. That's what the stories tell us. And so these, these demon-possessed men were not just like, ordi- not that there's ever an ordinary demon-possessed person. There's no like sort of ho-hum, casual demon possession. It's like, ah, oh, just a Tuesday little demon possession. That doesn't exist. But these, you get what I'm saying. These men, it's something extraordinary uh, is happening. And the people are frightened. But what's really interesting is that when these incredibly powerful demons in these two men encounter Jesus, they ask him, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? A couple of things happening here. First, these demons recognize Jesus in a way that most people at the time did not recognize him. Isn't that fascinating? And why is that? Why is that? It is because these demons live in the spiritual realm. They see that which most people at the time could not see on the surface. Though most people on the surface saw Jesus as a brilliant, miracle-working rabbi from Nazareth, the demons saw Jesus for who he actually is, the Son of God. And they tremble in fear. And then they have this fascinating line. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? This is weird on the surface, but for followers of Jesus, you guys, this is incredible hope. Because the enemies of God, the spiritual forces of evil in our world, what do they recognize? They know how the story is going to end. They know where things are headed. Revelation chapter 20, near the end of the Bible, when John has a vision of when the human story comes to its final conclusion and God embarks on ushering in his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Revelation 20.10, the devil, this is a future day, the devil was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night. These demons have a vision of the future day when Christ, after his death, resurrection, ascension as king, will then someday return. And upon that day, these demons and all demons and the devil, the great enemy of God, will be sent into the depths of hell because Jesus will reign as king. What's really fascinating to me is that these demons recognize who Jesus is, where the story is headed, and their ultimate fate. And the irony is that so many of us Christians today have less faith than the demons. Remember, Lisa mentioned this briefly last Sunday. We've talked about this many times here. Faith is not primarily about intellectual belief. It is about embodied trust. I'm not saying that you and I as Christians, those of us in the room who are Christians, I'm not saying we intellectually believe less than the demons do. I am saying we embody belief in ways that fall short of these demons sometimes. 
Because if God is for us and if Jesus has come, died, rose again and ascended and will return, if we believe that, not just in our minds, but in our bodies, then we will react and respond the way these demons do except in the opposite direction. These demons see Jesus and they're like, oh no, son of God, are you gonna torture us? But how often in our lives when things get hard do we say, oh yes, Jesus, with us and for us, we're gonna be okay. How often do we find ourselves faced with the harsh reality of a broken, sinful world and say, well, throw our hands up. Well, that's it, our, this place sucks, the world sucks, nothing's ever gonna get better. That's cynicism, nihilism. It's like, I just got, I, I guess I gotta make more have more financial security to figure things out. I was like, I don't know. I don't know where any of this is headed. I just gotta like have a good time, feel good, and then that's that, right? How many of us intellectually know, oh yeah, Jesus is king, he's gonna take care of it all, but in our bodies, we're just like, we have less faith than these demons. James chapter two, you believe, you Christians believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. And just as they shudder, do you rejoice? That's the question. One theologian describes this passage this way. He says that for Matthew, the biographer, the point of the story is this. It's time. Time for the kingdom of heaven to invade earth. Time for evil to relinquish its death grip on God's creation. It's really interesting, this story takes place in the Gadarenes, which is in a region called the Decapolis, Decapolis meaning 10. The Decapolis was a large region in the ancient world comprised of 10 cities, and these 10 cities, the Decapolis, it was primarily Gentile, it was primarily not Jewish, even though there were lots of Jewish uh, people and, and populations in the Decapolis. Now what's really interesting is that in the Decapolis, in the Gentile pagan world, um, there were lots of people who actually claimed to be exorcists. They, like, this is not the only, like Jesus is not unique here in that he engages demons. This was fairly common practice in the ancient world. But the fact that these men, again, in Mark and Luke's version of the story, that these men were chained up tells us that all of the exorcists in town could not handle these demon-possessed men but Jesus does. And how does he handle them? Do you notice how, uh, how much Jesus speaks in the story I read to you? Anyone? That's it. Dude, he says one word. It's like this big, giant story, right? Demon-possessed men, everyone's afraid. They come rushing at Jesus. There's a herd of pigs. You know, you know, like, if you go out to dinner and you notice a first date happening in the corner of the restaurant, here's how you know how it's going. If one person is doing all the talking and the other person is just kind of like, it's not going well. There's an incongruence, there's an incongruence of insecurity and interest. You know what I'm saying? Like if the guy is just like, so yeah, like this and that, I'm really into this, I'm really into that. What about you? She's about to answer, but he just jumps in and keeps going. It's like that is not going well. 
because it's not really like an interaction of equals. Typically, the one doing all the talking is the one that's really deeply insecure, kind of nervous, uncertain that this is gonna work out. In this story, the demons are like, oh my goodness, son of God, why are you here? You gonna torture us? What's going on? If you're gonna send us out, send us into those pigs, please, please. And then Jesus is like, go. (laughs) It's like, it's so awesome. Jesus is in control. And he controls that which you cannot even see with a word. Whatever thing is enslaving you, whatever pain, whatever shame, whatever guilt, whatever nihilism, cynicism, materialism, individualism, whatever it might be, Jesus has the power to look you in the eye and the enemy of God that chooses to suppress and oppress and enslave you. And with a word, he can free you. Go. Colossians 2. He, Jesus, is the head over every power and authority. 1 Corinthians 15. The end will come. And when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the question is, do we want that? The story continues. Jesus said to them, to the demons, go. So they came out, went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the, in the water. And those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town, this is a total turn of events, you guys. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw Jesus, they pleaded with him to leave their region. What? Jesus just freed two men who'd been possessed by demons that had struck fear in that town. Jesus has just freed them with a word and the people come back and they say, please leave. How does this make any sense? One one, um, commentator describes it, explains it this way. The inhabitants considered the monetary loss of the swine more important than the spiritual benefits they may have received had Jesus stayed. The theologian Craig Keener says the deliverance of the demoniacs, the demon-possessed men, mattered more to Jesus than the fate of the swine. Ignoring the men's deliverance and focusing on the destruction of the property, the Gadarenes viewed Jesus as dangerous to their interests. I love this line, the best, P.P. Levertov. All down the ages, the world has been refusing Jesus because it prefers its pigs. (laughs) We long for healing from our obsession with the lies, the, the lies of the enemy. We long to be healed and freed, set free from our obsessions, the way they possess us, our enslavement and oppression. But make no mistake, Jesus' power that heals also disrupts. If you want Jesus to look the enemy in the eye in your life and say go, it will disrupt your life. Let me show you another graphic. If you want Jesus to free you from enslavement to individualism, the disruption means Jesus is now the center of all things, not you. 
If you want Jesus to free you from the obsession or enslavement to pluralism, you must adhere to the reality that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one and nothing else. If you want freedom from cynicism, you must embrace the reality. Only in Jesus do I find hope. Freedom from nihilism means that only in Jesus do I find meaning. Freedom from materialism means that in Jesus, my loss is gain. Freedom from hedonism means that it is in Jesus and only Jesus that I find deep joy. These are disruptions to our lives. But if you would let Christ our King disrupt your life this way, you will go from being obsessed and possessed to set free. As we read in Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 1 John chapter 3, the devil has been sinning from the beginning, but the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. If Jesus destroys the devil's work in your life, it will disrupt your life, but it will free you. I'm gonna invite Mark and the team to come back up. We're gonna sing and respond together. Again, today is Palm Sunday, when we remember just a few short days before his arrest and crucifixion and his death, Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king. He entered as a hero, and the people believed that Jesus was going to free them. But the way the people believed Jesus would free them was that he would take up sword and spear and overthrow the Roman Empire. And when Jesus did not overthrow the empire the way they expected, the people turned. When Jesus essentially said, no, the way I am going to win victory for us is to die, not to kill. That was a disruption to the people's plan. And they turned on him. They're like, no, man, what, what a bunch of baloney. You are not the guy we thought you were. And this is the question before us today. If you want Jesus to say to the enemies of God that are trying to attack and oppress you in your life, if you want him to say, go, then you have to open yourself up to disruption. So what are the obsessions in your life? What lies of the enemy have taken hold and maybe even possessed you in a strange way? If you want Christ to heal you, then what you are saying is that you want Christ to disrupt your life. But when Christ disrupts your life, that's the path to actual life in the truest, deepest sense. So my invitation no matter what lies of the enemy have taken a hold of you, surrender yourself to Jesus. Give yourself up to him and find freedom. I wanna show you an image of a Japanese soldier from World War II. This is Hiro Onoda. And he was a Japanese soldier that was deployed to the Philippines during World War II uh, in 1944. And then, I don't know if you remember, but the war ended about a year later, right? I think, 1945, World War II ended. But when World War II ended, Hiro Anoda was still hiding out in the jungles. 
So they couldn't find him. So the Japanese government started dropping leaflets into the jungle, specifically to Hiro Onoda and some of his fellow soldiers who were still there. They were like, the war's over. The war's over. It's peacetime now. Come out of the jungle, surrender yourselves to the Philipp uh, Philippine army, and then we'll bring you home to Japan. It's over. And Onoda and his fellow soldiers thought it was um, propaganda from the enemy. So he stayed in the jungle. And over several years, his fellow uh, comrades that were hiding out in the jungle with him eventually died. They tried to do these little missions, and some of them got killed. Hiro Onoda stayed in that jungle for 30 years until 1974. And the reason he finally came out was the Japanese army found Hiro Onoda's original commanding officer, who was long retired, an elderly man running a small bookstore in Japan. And they asked him, would you fly to the Philippines, go into the jungle, find Hiro, and tell him that he is relieved of duty. And this old man running a bookstore did just that. And I'll show you the next photo. In 1974, after 30 years in the jungle, Hiro Onoda finally surrendered and came home. I share this with you because I think so many of us are just wading through unnecessary jungles. The demons already knew where this story was headed. Victory has already been won. You are already free. All you've got to do is say, oh, yes, that's the life I want. To leave the jungles of your cynicism and individualism and pluralism and nihilism and hedonism and materialism and on and on. To leave that life behind and to walk into the freedom that Christ has already won for you. You are already free. Just come out. Let Jesus say, go to the work of the enemy in your life and surrender yourself to the freedom of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing together.